0: The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Nice to see you all here uh, in the room. Hey, good morning. If you're online with us, 11 o'clock people, glad uh, that you're with us. I have a few more uh, announcements before we jump into our time in the text. Why? Because... I have a face mic and you do not so uh, so I get to tell you whatever I want and these three things I, I have three more things I want to announce uh, these are three uh, kind of discipleship opportunities in addition to D groups that we are offering this spring and I just wanted to you to be aware of these three things first women's Bible study is is coming back so uh, last semester we had women's Bible study we were doing that again uh, they are studying first and second Kings it's a six week series there they're meeting in in this uh, room every other Tuesday evening, and so you can sign up at fathomchurch.org/women. All of our protocols about masks and distancing and all of that will be uh, practiced. So I just wanted to invite the women to join uh, Women's Study this uh, spring. Second, we are relaunching men's Bible study. So we haven't had men's Bible study in a a couple of semesters, but we are relaunching this. Uh, So men's Bible study will be studying uh, the book of Proverbs. That will be Tuesday nights uh, at the church. They'll probably be meeting in the basement, but it's gonna be every Tuesday night. Uh, So those will kind of coincide with the women's studies. Royce Robinson is gonna be our study leader. And so uh, if you've signed up for that or you're interested in that, please do sign up. Uh, That'll be a a really good study through the, the book of Proverbs. So that's going to be fathomchurch.org men. And then finally, uh, we're, we're, we're relaunching this thing. I've rebranded, I'm calling it Man Up. Just sounds cool, right? Like man up. Uh, but uh, these are—I've done a disciple discipleship cohort for men uh, a number of times here at the church. Haven't done it for a couple of years. Decided this is the year to relaunch this. So man up is a, a ten-month intensive discipleship cohort uh, where we are reading books together. There is going to be uh, some coaching. There's going to be accountability. We're going to be making disciple plans together. It really is kind of like a discipleship boot camp. Uh, whether you are a new believer or you have been uh, kind of on the, on the path with Jesus for a while, this will be something that will hopefully uh, challenge you to go deeper with Jesus. So this is kind of like the, 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 the varsity squad. This is one of those things you can't sign up for unless you're willing to read. I don't know if you read. I, I mean, I know a lot of you don't, but like some of you haven't read since college. Some of you didn't even read in college, right? Like I don't know how you got through it, but... This is, this is going to be a little bit higher bar of entry. Um, the men's Bible studies is, is kind of an easier bar of entry. This is a little higher bar of entry, but we would invite you to join this, fathomchurch.org slash men. You can find all the details there and download the syllabus because there's, I mean, it's like school. It's like real thing. So just want to commend those things to you. 2021, we want to go deeper with Jesus this year. And so we're going to do that in groups and we're also going to do that in Bible studies and in this cohort. So just throw that out there as my, this is my first Sunday back uh, this year. So there you go, 21. Hey, Let's get, a, let's get after this. My name's Chris, if I don't know you, okay? I'm the pastor here. We've got work to do. Grab your Bibles, if you would. Open them up to 1 Samuel. Uh, if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. You can open that up. You can open a phone or a tablet to 1 Samuel. We have a lot of text to cover this morning, and so I need you to open this up and look at it. ESV, the English Standard Version, is what we're going to be reading. 1 Samuel is on page 319 in my Bible, which means it's on something on yours, okay? If you're online, there's a little button for the Bible. Get you to 1 Samuel as well, 1 Samuel 1. Uh, during, during 2020 and the, and the COVID pandemic, uh, you've probably heard about it. I, I have heard about it, um, but, but it, you've probably read articles. There has been a huge rise in anxiety and depression. You've probably heard about this, okay? Uh, there's been a, another, another large rise in suicide and suicide attempts, Uh, the last calendar year. And then there's also been a a large rise in substance abuse, alcohol and drug use, things like that, uh, substance abuse. Uh, And so I, I think it's safe for us all to agree and say that we are not only in a physical health crisis, but we are also in a emotional and mental health crisis as well. If, if we've learned anything, it's that that, that that has been brought to the surface last year. Um, and, and I want to I pose that we were already in this crisis before COVID ever existed. We were already in this crisis. It's just COVID kind of brought it to the popular level surface and, and exacerbated the problem. Really did. Okay. So here's some stats I found online. Uh, these are pre-COVID stats. One, and, one in eight Americans is on some sort of prescribed antidepressant. One in eight. Uh, depression medications are rising at a rate of 300%. Is what I read. Uh, suicide it was, before 2020, was the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Uh, I don't know what it is now. I would imagine it's higher than that now. Um, in in uh, 2019... More than 48,000 people died of suicide and more than 1.4 million people attempted to take their own lives. And yet, so I say all those facts, those are facts. And yet, anxiety and depression and mental health in many Christian circles is, has been treated as something of like a taboo. It's been treated as something that we, we don't talk about it. Like, we just don't say it, talk about it a, a whole lot. We, we kind of, you know, put some platitudes about scriptures, about all things working out for good, around people who struggle with things like this. And so many of us kind of just sit in our chairs at church and go, well, I guess this isn't relevant to anybody else here. I guess this isn't relevant because the pastor never talks about it, and everybody's just kind of smiling and perfect, and they walk down the halls, and they're just like, oh, how are you? I'm blessed and highly favored. And it's like, oh, great. And so you tell yourself that you're the only one when in reality, you're probably not the only one in your row who's struggling. The interesting thing though, is that all throughout the Bible, uh, we find people struggling with what I think are mental and emotional health issues all through the scriptures. Okay. uh, Elijah, the great prophet at one point in his life was so discouraged and weary and afraid that he wanted to die He wants God to take his life. Okay, Jonah at one point was so angry, he asked God to kill him. Jeremiah, another prophet, uh, wrestled with deep loneliness and insecurity in his life. And then even King David, King David, David and Goliath, David, all right? A man after God's own heart. This guy battled deep, deep despair through seasons of his life. We read about it in the Psalms and in the narratives in the Old Testament. So if... If we are people who take seriously this book, the word of God, the the scriptures, if we are people of the book, then it would seem that mental and emotional struggles are not out of the ordinary, okay? They are not taboo. They are not to be swept under some rug. They're not unmentionable things. They're actually a part of many characters in the scriptures' lives and many of our lives too, so we shouldn't tell people that they shouldn't struggle with these sorts of things. And we certainly shouldn't believe that we shouldn't struggle either. The reality is, the scriptures are very honest with us. Life is really hard. Life is really messy. But in the midst of despair or depression or disappointment, there is a promise. And the, the scriptures promise relief from those things and that promises is, is the word peace peace in the old testament shalom peace biblical peace can be defined as confidence or righteousness or relief or or trust Uh, Shalom means like it is all right, like it is all okay. It means security and welfare and calm and prosperity and, and completeness, wholeness, basically every word that you would not have used to describe last year or, well, aside from the first five days of 21, this year, right? You're like, I haven't felt that since 19, back in 2019, right? Like, But you see, even before COVID, we needed peace. It's actually one of the things that I think COVID has done really well. It's made us all the more aware of our deep-seated need for the peace of God. And that so much of our peace that we surround ourselves with has been built on other things that have failed us. Jesus calls those things shifting sands. When you build your life and you find your peace on things that are not stable, they're sand, they they move around and they shift on you. So today we're going to jump into 1 Samuel. We're going to be studying 1 Samuel uh, for a couple of months. And and in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, let me just give you some context here. 1 Samuel comes right on the heels of the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, uh, if you thought 2020 was bad, uh, Judges is way worse the world is in shambles. God's people have no peace. People are dying. They're being led by these, these squirrely, sometimes super sketchy judges. There's no prophets. There's no king. Everything is a total disaster at the end of the book of Judges. And we open into 1 Samuel and peace is not even on the, on the table for God's people. That's historically what's going on. And from the book of Judges into the book of 1 Samuel, we begin to see the shift of God's people away from the time of the judges and into the time of becoming a monarchy, establishing a king, and entering into what we call the golden age of Israel. When Israel was at its peak, we find that in 1 Samuel. So uh, in 1 Samuel, we will find, and I've kind of subtitled this series, Prophets, Priests, and Kings. We will find the prophets, we will find the priests, and culminating at the end of 1 Samuel, we will have the, 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 the second and greatest king in the history of Israel, King David, uh, who uh, you know, we all love and know. But in order to get to King David, there's a lot of stuff we need to see, and we have to start in 1 Samuel 1, where we meet a woman named Hannah, who found peace in light of great despair. So, Let's get to the text. There's my long introduction. Welcome back to 21. First Samuel chapter 1. We're gonna start in verse 1, uh, reading through verse 5. Follow along with me. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim in the country in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elahu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, son of uh, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. Uh-oh right? Trouble. There's your, verse two. We didn't even make it through the hard names. Trouble. He had two wives. That's always, if your radar goes up, that should go up. It's not good. Okay. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina and Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, uh, Elkanah, this man, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where two, uh, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and, and, uh, and daughters, but to Hannah, verse 5, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So this is the setting of the story. It opens up on a man named Elkanah. He has two wives, Hannah and Penina. Uh, Penina has multiple children. She is fertile. She is uh, having all these kids. But Hannah, we are told, had no children. She was barren. Uh, we would say she struggled with infertility. Um, and as we will see in this text, uh, that infertility, the, the barrenness of Hannah, is the cause of, of deep distress and depression and despair for her. Okay, uh, now infertility, it's, it's a thing today. Like if you've had any issues with infertility, you know, it is a real thing. But historically, in context, it's very different back then than it is today. Children and, and being able to have children is viewed very differently, okay? Uh, kids today are a means of personal fulfillment, of familial joy. There, there's there's great, very, very good things about kids today, but there were other forces at work contextually uh, in, in these days. First, the more children that you had, Uh, the more economic stability you would have. Because frankly, you would have more people who could work and earn for the family. So whether it's uh, an agricultural kind of farm or a business, you would have more laborers, as it were, and and that would set you up financially for more success. Second, the more children that you had in this time, uh, the more likely you would be cared for in your old age. So children were essentially the ancient version of social security, there was no, you know, getting your check from the government if you didn't have children, you and you were elderly, you were in trouble. This is why widows with no children were in dire straits at this time. And then third, the more children that you had, the more security your your nation had. Okay, in these days, national strength was solely measured by militaristic strength. How big is your army? How well can you stave off the attacks of other nations and their armies? And so the more sons that one had, the larger the army, the more secure the nation. So considering all of these factors, having as many children as possible was the gold standard. It was the gold standard. It was the very best thing that a woman could do. I mean, by all standards, it was the most admirable thing a woman could do. And certainly the most culturally acceptable role for a woman at this time. And so right off the bat, we know that Hannah doesn't fit in. She doesn't fit in with that expectation for what a woman was supposed to be in her culture. Now let's see what happens. Verses six and seven. And her rival, so that's uh, Penina, her rival used to provoke Hannah uh, grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. So as bad as you know, being infertile being barren would have been for hannah added to the complication is that the sister wife or whatever penina starts to goad at her starts to make fun of her mock her even uh, why do, why does she do this we don't really know perhaps it's because uh perhaps she was jealous of hannah i mean it's obvious that elkanah loved he gave her a double portion so he loves her more so maybe she's jealous like maybe she's just a jerk Right? Maybe she's, I mean, there's just jerks out there. Like maybe she's like that person on Facebook that you're like, golly, stop it, right? Like that's maybe what's going on. But whatever the reason, the text said that she would apply this pressure every single year when they'd go to Shiloh to worship. Year after year, mocking, pushing, pressing. Hannah, why don't you have kids? Wouldn't you love to have kids? Oh my gosh, all these children, so many mouths to feed. It must be so difficult. Oh, Hannah, you've got it so easy. no kids, just goading, just prodding. And I think this pressure that she applies on her to try and fit in is actually the first kind of shifting sand that Hannah could be tempted to try and find peace in. Okay. Hannah could try to find peace, but it would have been false peace if she had tried to conform to what I'm calling the cultural ideals. This is the first false peace that we can try and find for ourselves, for our despair and our depression and our anxiety and our stress, right? Every culture provokes women and men, but we're talking about women, uh, provokes women and pressures women to live up to some sort of cultural ideal. Every culture, not just this culture, our culture too. Ours may not be childbearing in the same way that Hannah's was, but our culture puts enormous pressure on women to, to fit into some certain mold, it might, maybe it's to look a certain way or to be successful right at home and in the work field to 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 have credentials in whatever field you choose to accomplish in whatever way you need to accomplish you can you can you know I am woman, hear me roar kind of mentality like there's pressures, there's always these cultural ideals and and Panina is the voice beckoning Hannah to conform, beckoning Hannah. To fit. And if you don't conform, you are going to be stigmatized. And at best, you will be irrelevant, weird, out of sorts, or at worst, like Hannah, you can be persecuted and hated and despised. The culture wants you to fit, and Hannah didn't fit. We'll see what happens. Verse eight. But Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? So, so in walks the husband. And uh, I think uh, he does what, like my first read is like, oh my gosh, bro, don't say that right? He, it, it, on the surface, it feels like it's bonehead husband. Don't say that. Am I not more to you? Like, is it not? Like, of course, bonehead husband move is make it all about you, right? So I, of co- look at me. Sure, you don't have any kids, but come on now, right? Like that's, uh, Elkanah says, why do you weep? I think Hannah could have responded in any number of ways at this moment, right? And any well, the list is long, bro. Listen, I appreciate being your favorite wife, but in and of that, that's, there's some problems, okay? First, what really happened is you wanted some sons. I wasn't able to, so you found a young hussy, brought her in, and now they're getting all these kids. And by the way, she's the worst. I hate her. Thanks, you know? I mean, she could have ended anything like that. But in actuality, as we read a little deeper, I think Elkanah is actually being very kind and gracious in this moment. I don't think it's a bonehead husband move. For, 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 he really did love Hannah. Like he really did love her. He gave her a double portion. That meant a lot culturally, okay? He wanted, I think, very much to comfort her. And he seems to be doing all that he can to assure her that she is his true love. I I love you. All those kids, all that, but I love you. You're my soulmate. You complete me. And this is the second offer of false peace in the story. The cultural norms fitting into the cultural norms was the first offer of peace. But the second offer of peace is that she could try and find peace in a substitute love. A substitute love. It's almost like, no, you can't make the, the cultural ideal, sweetie, but, but at least you found love. Right? At least you found the love of a good man. Isn't that enough? Isn't that enough to satisfy you? Isn't that sufficient to bring you the peace that your heart desires? And to these two voices, these two false pieces that are offered, these shifting sands, Tim Keller, you know, pastor, a writer, genius, Yoda kind of guy, uh, he, he points out that, that Hannah, um, she does not respond to either offer. He says that you can read the Hebrew narrative and and what's interesting is these two voices of the culture and of her husband, but she responds to neither of them, to the voice of the culture that is coming from Penina, saying that her worth is completely based on whether or not she can bear children. She doesn't fight back. She doesn't lash out. She doesn't start rubbing in Penina's face the double portion and the love of her husband. She doesn't do any of that, but she remains silent. And then to the voice of her husband, which is this, I'm just trying to comfort you. I'm just trying to show you that I love you, that you're my soulmate, saying that peace could be found in that relationship. She doesn't give in to that either. She remains silent and does not seek peace from the comforting of a fitting in to the cultural ideal, nor from her husband's affections. And I just want to pause and apply for us. Here's the truth. If you want real peace, Real, deep, biblical peace. And you seek to find it in anything except God. And it looks really good from the outside. Like on the surface, the new job, the marriage, the child, the money, the success, they all look really good. Good and seem to be the source of peace. But I'm telling you, they will all let you down. They will all bring false peace. They'll all bring false peace. Raising your kids, what a delight. But they'll grow up and leave you pursuing your career. That's, that's that, yeah, climb the ladder, get your name on the building, do whatever it takes. But guess what? At some point it's over and you're irrelevant and you'll get a cake and you'll get a watch and they'll send you on your way to bring up the next guy. Refine your hobbies. That's great, okay? Perfect your appearance. Do all these things that you want to do, but they all bring a false peace, a temporary peace. Any, sus- any, any, any sustaining relationship, even the best relationships, great relationships with your kids, with your grandkids, with, with, with your spouse, with your friends, all of these cannot be where you find your peace because they are all temporary, And Hannah, in not responding to these offers of false peace, I think what the author is doing is leading us to see where she's going to find peace. He's leading us, when she says no, essentially, to the peace of the culture and the peace of a relationship, the the author is is like leading us to where can we find true peace? And that's where we're going to find Hannah in verse 9. Verses 9 and 10. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose... Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting behind the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And, and Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and whip, wept bitterly. So the, the language in verse 10 is really important. Verse 10 says she is deeply distressed. Now, in the Hebrew, that's kind of difficult to translate into English, but literally it could be translated, uh, she is in soul pain. Her soul is pained, deeply distressed. And then it says that she weeps bitterly at, this is where she's at. This is where Hannah is at. She doesn't bite on the false piece of culture. She doesn't bite on the false, false piece offered to her by her husband, but instead she brings her distress. She brings her depression. She brings her despair, her soul pain to the Lord. And she just dumps it there. She prays. Again, for us, this is where we as Christians have to stop pretending that we're okay. Especially if we aren't. I mean, I make the joke all the time about like, hey, it's church. It's not a good place to be honest, but it's a sad thing that that's funny. No place to be honest in church, right? Like that, the fact that we chuckle at that means that something is significantly broken. Like we've got to get to the place where we stop pretending we're okay when we're not like this is where mental and emotional health must not be a stigma in our community any longer, because here's the truth. The fake you is doing awesome. The fake you is doing great. The fake you looks awesome on Instagram. The fake you posts amazing things on Facebook. The fake you down the hallway, blessed and highly favored, holding hands, smiled with bleached teeth. That fake you is doing great the real you were concerned about. And if church isn't the place where you can come as you are, then where are you going to go? Listen, some, some of you, maybe in this room, maybe online, some of your marriages are so jacked up, right? You, you've, you've not had any sort of intimacy for God knows how long. And it's it's not even on the, the radar in light of what she said to you or what he has done to you. It's just not even there. But debt man down the hall, it's like hey, hey. Right? For some of you, your finances are so messed up, you don't know how you'll ever get out from under that debt. It's like this weight on your chest. It's what you think about when you wake up at one in the morning and you can't breathe feels so overwhelming. Man, for some, you've got this addiction and, and you just can't figure out why you can't kick it. You can't figure out why you can't kick it because you, you love Jesus. You really do. You really love Jesus and you worship Jesus and you're coming to study and you're coming on Sundays and you're lifting your hands and you're giving your money and yet the thing that you wrestled with when you were a teenager still is haunting you the same way that it was and you can't figure out what to do with it. Or maybe you've got a child <clears throat> and you trained up your child in the way that he should go, but, but he didn't. And somebody told you that verse was a fail safe and you don't know what's wrong with you. Your soul is in pain. And then for some, it, it might be a literal depression, whether it's chemical or not, like a literal depression. And honestly, before you started struggling with it, you didn't even have a theology for Christian depression. It didn't fit in your frame of reference. And so you tried to bring it up to a Christian friend and you said, man, I'm just so just depressed. I can't get out of this. this." And they they responded with, you're depressed? Well, my Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And you're like, man, I hate you. And you never brought it up again. Never talked about it again. Maybe it's one of those things. Maybe it's something else, but, but you know what it means to have soul pain. See, I just wanna say that if you're faithful to the Bible, and I think if you're faithful to practicing Christian faith, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to be in despair to be depressed, to be distressed, to be anxious, to be stressed. Those are normal things in this life. But the Christian response, the biblical response is to bring it. It's just like Hannah. She, she brought her deep distress and she wept before the Lord. You have to stop pretending you're okay when you're not or there is no peace to be had. I love it that Hannah doesn't bite on any of these false pieces, but instead it says she rises up, heads to the temple, pours out her heart, her distress, her depression, her despair, and she prays. She prays her distress. She prays her bitterness. She weeps her tears. She prays them. Look at her prayer. It's, it, I mean, it's fascinating stuff. Look at verse uh, verse 11. And Hannah vowed, vowed and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch His head, those words, don't forget me. Remember me, God. You ever feel this? God, where are you? Don't forget me. Remember about me. And then it seems at first glance that that, that she's just trying to make a bargain, right? Does that seem, I mean, it seems like that to me. Essentially, it seems like on the surface, Hannah's thinking that if I just have a son, then I'll, then I'll be okay. Everything will be okay. And so if, if God, if God, if you give me a son, I'll make sure he goes into the ministry. I'll make sure he has a good haircut. Make sure he goes to school. Make sure he goes to seminary. He'll be a pastor. Is that a good deal? God, is that a good deal with you? Like that's what it seems on the surface, but, but it's actually not what she's doing. I just want to say, that's not what she's doing. Hannah is not bargaining. She's actually surrendering. I'll I'll tell you why. Uh, She, when it said that no razor shall touch this boy's head, she is making what's called a Nazarite vow for this son. Now, if you wanted to work in the priesthood, you needed to be from a certain tribe of Israel, from the tribe of Levi. And so only the Levites could be priests, but there was a way, a workaround if you weren't a Levite, and that was to be a Nazarite, to have a Nazarite vow given where you would then essentially become like an adopted priest. You could work inside of the priesthood, even though you weren't a part of the tribe of Levi. And so in making this vow for the son, that he would be a Nazirite, that he would have a Nazirite vow. He would would never have a razor touch his head. He would not drink alcohol, these things. He forfeits all of the benefits of being her son. Everything that culturally would have satisfied her, he forfeits. Financial stability? Nope. Because Levites can't own property. They don't have money. They live off of the temple. Okay, security in her old age from a son, not happening if he's working for the Lord for his entire life. Not even the joy of watching her son grow up. She doesn't get to raise him and then send him off. Once he is weaned from being nursed, he is sent to the temple and he will work there and be raised by the priests. She doesn't get to teach him how to ride a bike or how to read or watch him go to school, watch him go to a date. He, she gets none of this. You see, this is no bargain to find peace in a son, but rather it's surrendering her very desires to the Lord. So many of us in our distress, in our depression, in our despair, we move as far away from God as we can. We say, God, you're not giving me what I think. You're not doing what I think. You're not behaving the way that I think you should. And it's causing me pain and it's causing me stress and it's causing me anxiety. And so I've got to distance myself and find peace somewhere else because this thing isn't working for me. But Hannah moves towards God and surrenders her very heart to him. So what do you do when your life is defined by distress? Distress. Or depression, or despair. The Bible says we pray. And listen, hear me. I'm not diminishing the need for counseling. I'm not diminishing the need for for even for medication, antidepressants, things like that. Okay? Like God. Here's the truth. God can heal through people, pills, and prayer. He does. All right, I'm not anti any of those things, but as Christians, we've got to start with prayer. That's our first thing. Do you see prayer as your first line of defense or as your last resort? You ever hear people say, well, all that's left to do is pray. Ah, that's not all that's left to do. That's all. You start with that. That's the first thing we do. This is how Hannah does it. Look at verses uh, 12 through 16. Man, it's just so impressive. This, uh, we'll get through it, I promise. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have neither drunk, uh, drunk wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. You see, in response to anxiety and great vexation, it says that Hannah pours out her soul before the Lord. When was the last time you prayed like that? And taking your distress and your despair and, and all these things and poured them out before. I mean, she is, she, you know, Eli thinks she's drunk she's praying so hard. That's either an indictment on Eli who can't tell the difference between somebody who's intoxicated and somebody who's praying, okay? It says a lot about his priestliness, but it also speaks highly of the fervor with which Hannah is praying, he mistakes her as a drunkard because she is so wrapped up in pouring out her soul before the Lord. I, I, I've been asked this question. I love this question. If God answered yes to every prayer that you've prayed in the last week, how different would things be in this world? Like if you could think back for the last seven days and you, the prayers that you pray, like if he said right now, yes, you get all that. How different would this world be? It's been a crazy week, so maybe some stuff would be different. But, but the reality is, man, we kind of pray weak prayers. We don't really pray our souls before the Lord too often. I mean, more often for me, it's, Lord, bless this food to nourish my body. Yeah, that's what food does. Like, I just say all the, like that's, it's going to do it whether you pray for it or not. And, but, but that's what we pray. We pray, Lord, bless this food and bless this day. And Lord, do something about Elway which he did, right? So like, praise the Lord, that's something prayers are answered, right? But, But Hannah prays. She prays her distress. She prays her depression. She prays her tears, her anxiety, her vexation. And here's what she finds. Look at verse 17 and 18. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And Hannah said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Now this is maybe my most important thing. So if I lost you, which I probably did, bring it back in. Come on, zoom in in right now. This is the most important part. Before God ever changes her situation, he changes her the text that we just read said her face was no longer sad. God used prayer to change Hannah before he changed anything else. Keller again says it this way. He says, it doesn't go prayer, pregnancy, peace, which is how we would think it would go. I pray, I get what I asked for, and I find the peace that I need. But Keller says, no, this story goes the exact opposite. She prays, she finds peace. And then her circumstances begin to change. Hannah finds the peace of God before she ever gets pregnant. Her peace was not tied to her situation, it was tied to her Savior. And and this is what then Paul says in Philippians 4, which Jackie read on the video before this service. This is what Paul says. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That verse is so important because if you start with verse six, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, start praying. We would want it to say, and God will answer your prayers. Bring Him your anxiety, pray to Him, and He's going to answer your prayers. But the, the result of your prayers is not a change in circumstance, it's a change in heart. The result of bringing your anxieties to Him and praying your tears to Him is peace that doesn't even make sense. It's so crazy. It surpasses understanding because you didn't get what you wanted and yet you still found peace. What do you do with your distress and your depression and your despair? You pray. Let's finish this up. Verses 19 and 20. This is how Hannah's story here culminates. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord And then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. Biblically knew, no, right? You got that? There's no kids in here. They they knew each other, okay? Uh, He knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Remember her prayer? Don't forget me. Lord, remember me. Well, the Lord remembered her. Verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Last point, man, this is so important. Okay. It says in due time, Hannah conceived. You ever noticed that, that our time and God's time are very rarely the same time. I'm, I'm appreciative for those three words in due time, because because I'm like, hey, get a little peace, get a little pregnant, awesome. But that would undermine, that would short circuit the process a little bit. In due time, in God's time, God provides Hannah with a son, not overnight, but over time. After she has received peace, God gives her the desires of her heart. Now I bring all this up and I preach all this for our first message in for Samuel, my first message with us this year. Um, because a couple of years ago, I found myself uh, in a place similar to, I think, how Hannah was. A couple years ago, I found my, like, I've, I have not experienced long-term ongoing anxiety and depression personally, um, but man, there have been some seasons of great distress and despair and depression in my life. And in one of my one of my worst, as I was reading how Hannah was describing herself here, with deeply distressed, a soul pain. I thought, "Oh man, I totally resonate with this." Like in this season, I found myself just weeping. Everyone just uncontrollably, just show, I would be driving and I would just start weeping and I wouldn't know how to stop and why it would start. And I, I found myself hardly eating. I had very little appetite. I'd go out to dinner and just pick a, I just could not eat. I was so distressed. And then the nights, I don't know about you, but like at night when the sun goes down and things get dark, every emotion that I am able to barely control during the day shows up. And it's like amplified tenfold. I don't know why it's so crazy in the dark, but I would pray every night, God, I don't want to wake up. I don't want to wake up because I don't want to go in circles in my head over what's going on. I just don't want to feel it. And my mom, during the season, she actually called my wife, Marcy, and, and told her to keep a close eye on me because... My family, my family of origin, historically has dealt with chronic anxiety, depression, and even suicidal tendencies. And so, like, they were worried. Like, I talked with Marcy this week about this season, and she was like, we were worried. It was dark. So I started meeting with a Christian counselor weekly, and actually I talked with him about this, and there were times where I'd have to call him midweek, like seven days. I couldn't get seven days before I needed help. So I'd sometimes be on the phone with him midweek because it wasn't enough to get to the next week. And so I started meeting with him and, 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 and just talking with him. And I just could not pull myself out for months of this depression. And my counselor asked me after a few weeks of, of initially meeting, he, said, he asked me about my prayer life. Christian counselors do that. That's kind of like the Jesus answer in Sunday school. Well, How, How's your prayer life? So he asked me about my prayer life. And, and honestly, like I, I really... I really felt like I couldn't even pray. I don't know if you've been there where you just are so, like I just, I didn't want to and I couldn't and I would sit down to try and pray and just, I, I would stare at the wall for an hour. Like I would just lose myself in my inability to pray. And so my counselor, he, he told me to start praying my distress he said when you sit down to pray if you don't want to pray pray about that if you sit down to pray and you're angry and you're 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 sad and you're hurt and you're anxious pray those things don't pray for the things that you think people will want to read in your journal someday like george washington's journal like oh like pray pray the way that you would pray if you knew that thing was going to be burnt up and no one would ever see it that's how you need to pray this season and so so I started doing that. And he reminded me of 1 Peter 5, uh, uh, verse 7 say, it says this, cast all your anxieties on him. And then he reminded me of the second part of that verse, because he cares for you. He said, Chris, don't forget that last line. You can cast all your anxieties, everything, all those tears, just bring it to him. Why? Because he cares for you. And so I started praying that way. And, uh, and every day I just pulled out a journal and I started writing my prayers. And man, some days the lit- it was like a line or two. It was like, God, I don't wanna pray right now. And then some days it was like pages and pages and pages. And I have that journal so I won't tell you where it's hidden, okay? But uh, I don't want you to read it. But I, I have that journal and there are pages in there that are literally, they're wrinkled and distorted because of the tears that literally were coming out of me while I was praying those prayers. And then back to our text, it says that the Lord remembered Hannah. Do You ever feel that? God, have you forgotten me? well, it felt like the Lord remembered me as I was doing this this exercise. Or maybe more accurately, like I remembered him. It's not that God forgot about Hannah. God doesn't forget, just so you're aware. But, But it's like Hannah remembered the Lord and that was what I experienced. And so over the course of about six months of doing this, meeting counseling, being with friends, being with family, writing my prayers, praying my prayers, um, over the course of about six months. So over time, not overnight, in due time, I came out of that depression and I, I found peace. And yeah, it was counsel. It was wise counsel. It was all this stuff. I, I, didn't have, I didn't need to be medicated, but it was love of friends and family. It was all these things. But prayer was really the turning point that led me to that peace. Now, now here's how I'm ending. Today, some of you walk in here and you are in soul pain. Maybe it's 2020, Maybe it's this past week in our country. Maybe it's a whole bunch of crap that you just don't even want to deal with from your past. I don't think I'm supposed to say that. Elders, check. I'm sorry. But you walk in here and you are in distress and you are in despair and you are depressed and you are anxious and you are vexed. And and those are your words. And whatever is causing it, I don't want to diminish any of those things, big or little, but whatever is causing it, I want to invite you to do what Hannah did. I want to invite you to pour out your soul in prayer. I want to invite you to, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I I want you to cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. I mean, send us a prayer request. We'll join you in this. We would love to pray with you in this, but listen to me. God cares for you. He loves you. Peace is what he is offering you. It's on the table for you. God peace, Bible peace, real peace, not false peace. Peace that surpasses your understanding. But hear me, it starts with prayer. That's how I want us to start this year together. Okay, I love you, church. Let's pray together. I know I went long. I knew I was going to. Let's pray. Lord, we do bless you. Oh, uh, what a passage. I mean, what a story. What a, what a woman in Hannah that we see here. God, we, we, we want to pray just kind of our, our, our mess for just a moment. God, I believe that there are people in this room, people online, people listening right now who, this isn't just theory. This isn't just a story. This is today. This is their life right now. God, I would pray that even as I'm praying, that they would be praying, that they would be pouring out their soul, that this would begin something right now, that it would begin um, bringing their reality to you. And then as we take communion and then as we worship, that all of those things would would be authentic responses to you, Father. I do pray that. I pray that we would be a church that would never stigmatize mental health, that would never stigmatize emotional distress, but that we would be a church that binds around people who are struggling, encouraging, lifting up, and, and, and that we would be a church where it's okay not to be okay. Where it's okay to not have to walk down that hallway with a grin and some sort of bumper sticker response to how you're doing. But that that we would cast our anxieties on you and that we would find peace that, that doesn't even really make sense in light of our circumstances. God, we believe you can do this. We ask you to do this. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.